Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Today's uh, topic we're going over is the uh, Torah reading called Vayakel. Vayakel means, and he assembled. and covers uh, Exodus 35, verse 1, through chapter 38, verse 20. Some of the big ideas that's always good to remember on this is basically, you know, why the tabernacle? What makes this thing different from... You know, if you go through archaeology and you see historical studies, you'll see that there are um, other shrines, mobile shrines, that were used by other nations, other peoples of the time period. The Egyptians had them. You know, the Babylonians had them. The Akkadians had them. So they, they had these various things. So what makes this particular one different? So when we're going through this this section here, the Torah section, Vayechel, Vayechel means, and he assembled. So it's a very interesting picture that we're looking at with this particular passage, because, and he assembled, because when you're looking at this as it's presented, as it's presented here in a succession, it's coming after what we read last time around which was about what? Golden calf and the aftermath and the uh, coming back from that. So and important to, to keep that in mind. So we'll be taking a look more at this question of you know, why the tabernacle, what makes this tabernacle so significant. Now also, why all this rehashing? <laughs> why all this rehashing of all these architect- architectural and interior design details? Because we just looked at them a few chapters ago, chapters 25 through 27, what was almost identical to what we, what we were looking at. So we'll be talking a little bit more about that. So it covered you know, basically three Torah readings. We were with uh, Taramah, Tetzavah, and Kitisa, where a lot of these details of the functions and, and the architecture, the what was going together of the tabernacle and of the priest's clothing and these various details. So one of the things to keep in mind is, again, the golden calf in between. And not just the golden calf, but what happened right after the golden calf. So what we should always keep in mind is that the key lesson from all of these descriptions and explanations and the use of the tabernacle is its primary function which was for the presence of the lord the presence of the lord in the midst of the people and one of these things that we keep seeing from back in genesis is this desire for heaven to dwell in the midst of the people we see that back in the garden Garden of Eden, where you have the the Lord walking through the garden and meeting with the first couple that were there. And 
that desire to dwell in the midst and having people dwelling with God has been something from the very beginning. So how do you get back into that relationship again? How do you get back into that situation? From the beginning in Genesis down through Revelation, Revelation, as we were talked about last time around, is where we see it coming back together again. And it's something the prophets talk a lot about. You know, like every new moon, we have a reading there from Isaiah 66 about the new heavens and the new earth. And from, every, from one new moon to the next and from one Shabbat to the next, people do what? Wander about or across the planet? Or no, they come to worship. They come together to worship. So it's a very interesting picture that we have of this coming together after the whole thing of the golden calf incident and the redemption. So you have this picture of the reestablishing of that relationship of heaven with earth. Israel formed, formed from a man who was called out, called out from Mesopotamia, called out from the various ideas, the civilization that was not God, going in quite a different direction from God, and called out from that to form a new people, a new people that would be the place where the presence of God would be established again, and that great goal of heaven dwelling with mankind gets reestablished again. So that then takes the picture of the pattern shown to Moshe on the mountain for the tabernacle, the Mishkan, the place of the dwelling, the place of the camping. And then that tabernacle then taken further as we see in John chapter one of the tabernacle becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So those are some of the big ideas we're going to be taking a look at here today. But also, we see that it goes further from just the Mashiach being the word made flesh and tabernacling among us to the each person, similar to what we've seen with the living stones that the Apostle Peter talks about, that we are all living stones built up into the house of God like stones in the tabernacle or should say the temple that these all come together to form one place where what the dwelling of the presence of god is with mankind again so thus this commonwealth of israel or the coming together of all people together even if you are not physically together but coming together as the body of Messiah to serve the purpose of this, of being the ambassadors of the Messiah, being the ambassadors of Christ into all the world around. So, just as we've talked about in previous occasions, ambassadors are to be an accurate representation of the nation, the leader who sent them. So, a leader of a country sends ambassadors. So, when ambassador shows up in front of another leader or people of some other nation, what do you expect? You expect the ambassador to faithfully represent the one who sent them. 
Yeah, they are to be faithful apostles. As apostle means sent one, just like shaliach in Hebrew means sent one. So an apostle of the Messiah. So what is the purpose of that? To bring people, just like the tabernacle, to bring the, ple- the presence of, of heaven closer to mankind, to f- toward that goal of all mankind coming into a great relationship with God, which is what you see with the new covenant prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, that there would be a time where everyone would know who the Lord is. Yes, Alex. I don't mean to be simple about it, but I, when you say ambassador, and I'm trying to stay accurate, I, I maybe watch politics too long. <laughs> Ambassadors kind of smooth the way. Ambassadors get appointed because they're a real big donor. So hopefully the Hebrews got a better word for it. Well, one of actually, you know, there there are always corruptions of everything, but probably one modern good representation of it is um, it's it's a how could you say it's a it's an anecdote. Maybe it's become a legend, but supposedly um, President Reagan called in one of his ambassadors that he was sending over and said, "Okay." who are you representing? And he said, well, I represent such and such country. And he said, no, they have their own ambassadors. I am sending you to represent me to them. So yes, even in modern times, that idea is what you're supposed to be as a faithful representative of who sent you to somewhere else. Now that brings up a very good point of those people who just, you know, bought their way into the job you know they're just buying time they they love the expense account they love to wine and dine in some other country well then you get down to something a thing that um you'll see repeatedly through the prophets where um the chastisement comes from the lord through the prophets saying you know my name is blasphemed among the nations because of you that is what you call a bad ambassador. <laughs> that, is, that is a schlock ambassador, is a bit, if not faithfully representing, presenting a false picture, which is what blaspheming is all about. To take the name, the reputation, what the Lord is known for, and then make it common or less than common, making it a point of derision, something that's not special. Yes. I, I was thinking that, Statesman might be a more honorable name for that kind of statesman. Thing. Yeah, a, a statesman, you know, is can be considered more of like someone who is like leading versus ambassador is someone who is you almost think of an ambassador is a a cultural interpreter. It's like an interpreter, you don't want your interpreter to just blow off whatever they think. No, you fire that interpreter. Now, you want to interpret it to accurately take what you say and make it understandable to the person who's hearing you. So a, an ambassador is a, you could say, a um, policy interpreter, a cultural interpreter, is supposed to understand who they're talking to 
and then be able to make what you're saying understandable to them. So thus you can see what that whole thing of being ambassadors for the Messiah is all about, is to be wherever we go, to be able to take the words of God and make them understandable and accurately represent them, not only just words, but also our actions and behavior, that we actually believe what it is we're saying and trust it. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say, um, that makes sense because we're, we're supposed to be trained up not with 5,000 different ideas about the law. We're ambassadors for the government, the one world government of you, almighty God who is coming. So we should be all of one accord and made one as these ambassadors. But at this point, we are blaspheming his name is because we have so many different religious groups with um, many ambassadors instead of being all of one accord. That's why there's so much confusion, I believe, out there is because, you know, there's so many different ambassadors saying, well, the law doesn't matter. My goodness, he nailed it to the cross, but we can pretty much do whatever we want and plug in pagan holidays. I mean, it doesn't matter because it's my faith. My faith at the end of the day is I believe in him. I don't really much have to do much except to believe that he is who he says he is. To me, that's a poor representation for the Almighty God, who we are supposed to be ambassadors. And I just pray that, you know, that we can all be real clear about what it is we have to do to be representatives of the government of heaven. Yes. Yeah, and that's actually something that we're going to be uh, talking about um, here in the... Yeah, coming up here in this particular uh, talk here today is that's something of huge import what you just uh, talked about here. So with that, just a little bit of a look of where we are in this particular account because you know we've gone through the here in Exodus we've gone through the first fifteen chapters are taken up with the Exodus and then you have then. Uh, from chapter 15 through 18 about the testing in the wilderness. Then at Sinai, chapter 19 through 24 is talking about the going up to the mountain and, and encountering God, getting the, the testimony of God. And then chapter 25 through basically the end of the book is about, okay, now you've met God, chapters 19 through 24, you have heard his testimony of what is really the core of who he is. Now then, how does heaven and earth really interact together, the, what we call worship? How is it that heaven and earth reconnect and that the dwelling place of God can truly be among mankind? And one of the key lessons that we get in the tabernacle is the, um, and we talked about it um, in one of our previous discussions of the layout of the tabernacle is it is a display of barriers to protect mankind from um, basically destroying itself by just wantonly coming into the presence of God. Because you just, it's, it's one of those things, you know, like when you deal with, uh, with children, you say, don't touch the stove because it's hot. Now, do you really understand what hot is? Well, some actually trust better than others to understand, wow, there is a danger there. I should not go 
delving into that, some others sadly have to um, get a little bit of pain to understand that there is a something to be afraid of. Yes. I didn't listen to my parents when they told me not to touch the stove, so I got good by the time. Good. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, w- I wish I listened to my parents about the jumping off the roof. That was, uh, yeah, not, not a good lesson. Thankfully, it wasn't a tall roof. Yes. So I'll think about being able to fly. Uh, no. So one of the... The things that we get in this we saw from our previous passage in chapter 32 through 34 was about the whole slide downward with the golden calf, but then the pulling the people of God back up out of this um, mire and muck with the golden calf back up with this picture of basically redeeming the people of God out, showing the, the glory, what the full glory and what the full name and reputation of the Lord are presented when Moshe says, show me your glory, show me your heaviness, your, the, the great um, magnitude of your presence. And then the Lord expresses that not only with something that he needs to be physically protected from, but also to be verbally presented to the attributes of God's character. So then we get through to the what we're looking at today and it's all about building the tabernacle again so much of this here like we mentioned before covered in chapters 25 through 27 so one of the things that is expressed through all of this construction is the moving of the person into the presence of god and that is really a lot of what the topic of the next book Vayikra or Leviticus is about, is about how then do you approach? We've got the architecture, we've got the interior design, we've got the, the uniforms of the people who serve in the tabernacle, but what then happens to actually move the person from the outside to the inside? You could say Vayikra is like the... Um, how can you say it? The, the decontamination protocol for going from the world outside the tabernacle toward the presence of God. I mean, we've been hearing a lot about decontamination protocols over the past couple of years, but in this, it's a detailed account of it. So just like the pattern shown of the architecture, the design, the uniforms of the people who serve, this then Vayikra goes into, okay, now the process of moving people from the outside in toward the center. So uh, then in the next, the next Torah reading, we're going to be looking at the basically the turning the light switch on for the tabernacle, putting it into operation with the, the blessing of the tabernacle and then with the with through that the asking for the lord's presence to come to the tabernacle and then the book ends with the lord moving in everybody else moving out and we see the same thing happen in first kings 8 and the um the haftarah or the parallel reading is for today is about first kings chapter 7 which is again about architecture and interior design again 
What then following first Kings chapter eight is about the prayer, the prayer of dedication. So very similar to what we're going to read in our next Torah reading next week, but the prayer of dedication, you have the King Solomon has a prayer of dedication and the presence of the Lord moves in. But again, this is about looking to bring the people around the earth closer into the presence of God. So, yes, you see this, this theme that just keeps getting repeated over and over and over again of the presence of God wanting to have people approach. But this is, people have to realize that this is not just a willy-nilly approach. So, just like if you are coming from a situation where you may have been contaminated or infected with something or other, you need to get disinfected on the way into a place that's sensitive here in the the other sense of it you know we have picked up in the world just by living here the infection of a life that is opposite or away from god so we need to be decontaminated you might say <laughs> to take this metaphor and beat it to a bulb um our spiritual immune system needs to get bolstered in the process not just cleaned up but bolstered and what does an immune system do it detects invaders it eliminates invaders so you might say that is a part of what's the whole um cleaning up moving from your flesh to living by the spirit is the the cleanup process then the immune system process and oh pamela yes you have your hand up go ahead yes um i was thinking of that little church that was used for a movie set somebody must have dedicated that to god a long time ago and here comes these people play acting in a movie set inside of a church and pulls a gun and shoots it inside god's dwelling Maybe that had something to do with the disaster. Okay. I, I don't quite know what you're referring to, but that uh, definitely that sounds Alex pretty Baldwin. dramatic. You don't know about Alex Baldwin accidentally shot the camera oh, right. person okay. killed her? Yeah. All right. That's, that's a it's, kind of very, very distressing uh, uh, situation, yes. But they, they don't seem to understand a spiritual significance that you don't do something like that in God's dwelling. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, definitely quite uh, distressing to, uh, to, I guess, you know, not respect what things are set up for. But, you know, one of the other things to, to keep in mind is that um, it's actually something that we'll get to in a little bit of uh, the later part of our discussion here today. But the things of God can also become um, idolatrous lucky charms if we lose sight of who is actually in charge of it and we treat them lightly. You might have just noticed in passing here of this particular discussion um, or the particular passage that we had today of the people or the women who were at the gate of the tabernacle and it says what did they do with their mirrors so they mirrors they melted them down and they became part of the uh the furnishings that were in there 
Now, you see with that situation, again, with also the contributions, this basically gets to the point, it's like, well, please stop. Stop bringing all of your contributions in. And again, you also have to see that this is thematically placed right after the golden calf and the redemption from the golden calf. So you see that right after this, the people were, had this outpouring of the blessings for it. So before, the architecture and the design and everything was presented to whom? Moses. Chapter 25, 27. He was where? On the mountain. Okay. And where were the people? Down at the bottom. With the calf. <laughs> with the calf, eventually. So it's one of those things, like, how do we worship God? Rather than wait to figure out how you worship God, they went with, go with what you know. So go with what you know. Possibly, you know, the way the descriptions of things are with the calf and everything, it could be related to what they had picked up in Egypt. So you think, oh, well, we'll do, do what the Egyptians do, you know, walk like an Egyptian. Well, that didn't quite work very well because they walked right into a disaster by walking that way. So when Moshe comes down the mountain, gets incensed over it, it's like, what are you mad about? We just heard him say 10 words. Then you went back up the mountain after he rumbled and thunder and everything. And so what did we get wrong on this? Well, waiting for figuring out what those statements were that they heard back from the mountain, then how do we approach God? You don't approach God the way Egyptians do or the Canaanites do or the Midianites do or anybody else. So that might be what the Canaanites do, but that's not, that's not all right. You have to approach God in the manner that God specifies. Basically saying, hey, these ways that the nations are approaching their gods is also a part of the problem of what's going on on the planet. So thus you need to learn a different way from that, which is also an emphasis that this presence of the Lord is truly kadosh. It is truly separate from everything that you have experienced before. It became a problem in later in Israel's history where you had the mixture of the pagan religions, the various Baals that were of the land with the worship of the Lord. It became a problem not only in Israel proper, but then when they split into two, it was a big problem up in the northern kingdom, but it was also a problem down in the southern kingdom of Yehuda as well. I mean, they've dug up little figurines. We've talked about them before. We've shown pictures of them, you know, where he basically says, you know, here is the Lord using the name and his Asherah and his wife. So mixing, blending things together. You do not worship the Lord the way that everybody else does you don't you don't do that so there had to be the lesson it's like okay you need to learn how you connect the testimony of the lord with what the lord actually wants you to do about this and they're all really uh wrapped up together but the presence of the lord and what is in the heart of it we talked about that back in <laughs> exodus 25 27 
there with the Aron, the Ark, and in the Ark is the tablets of the testimony. The tablets of the testimony, who the Lord is. That is at the heart of it. And everything is oriented around it as being, can you say, the direction and the focus of everything in the tabernacle. So, with that, we can say, well, why are we here? Is the destination is to get into the presence of the Lord. That's where all of the functions of the tabernacle are doing. Whether you are going all the way in, as in the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or if you're going part of the way in to the, to the holy place. And the whole orientation of the people of Israel was with the tabernacle at the center of it. As we talked about, kind of like the mountain, you had the boundary around the mountain where people just couldn't willy-nilly just go up for a looky-loo on the mountain, go see what this strange apparition is. You had the boundary, the courtyard around it, and then outside the courtyard, you had the the, uh, various tribes of the Levites out around that to basically say, okay, you... This is not just a um, a museum you're wandering into. This is the dwelling place of the Creator of heaven and earth, and you need to learn the process, just like you need to learn who the Lord is truly at the mountain. Then to learn who the Lord is through how you approach the Lord, moving from where you are to the Lord's presence in the process. So, one of the key things <laughs> that you go from where you are to the Lord's presence is the gate. And right there at the gate is, you don't just pull vault in over the sides. You don't, you know, parachute in over the top. You don't dig under the, the wall. There is one door where you go in through the tabernacle. You go in through that one door that is designated. And you could see that the witness to the world, that there is this living tabernacle, and we could see a witness there with Yeshua and John chapter 1, verse 14. And John chapter 10, the Yeshua talks about his, himself being the door, being the door to heaven, the door to the presence, the one way in, just like the tabernacle has one door in. And as we get into the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, we'll see a lot about this separation. You need to distinguish between the Tahor and the Tameh. And the Tahor, you know, it's often translated as clean and unclean. But really, when you start getting into the details of what is Tahor or clean and what is Tameh or unclean, you start seeing that, well, with some of them, it is just because of who you are or what time of your biological cycle it happens to be, whether you're a man or a woman. So thus you're like, are you really unclean or is it just you are unfit to approach the presence at that particular time because of what the lessons are in the whole approach process? So thus it may be better to think of them as fit to approach, Tahor, fit to approach, Tame, unfit to approach. 
And then that's where the lesson comes in that if you are Tame or unfit to approach, you don't go waltzing into the presence of God. You just say, just like at the mountain, you wait. Because Moshe went up the mountain, you wait to hear what Moshe brings back down the mountain. So we happen to be in a state of Tame. One of the lessons there when the the tabernacle and then the temple after it was standing was then you just wait until the situation changes. And we will go through Vaikra and talks a lot about the various situations changing for different types of people. It's just the, the lesson there of learning to have patience and also learning to trust and go through. Um, oh, thank you. That's uh, Rhea coming in. Fantastic. So, with this, you know, the, the great um, Hebrew style of argumentation of kal v'chomer, or light and heavy, so the light form with the tabernacle boundary, the courtyard, the curtain, all around the outside, being a distinction between tahor and tameh, between fit to approach and unfit to approach. So then how much more then, we as living stones uh, on the, the temple should be maintaining this separation between tahor, what is fit to approach, and tameh, unfit to approach. So you might think of like the, the kingdom of God as like a gated community. And what the image you get is all gated community, a bunch of uh, pretentious people that don't want to mix with the plebes and the unwashed. Well, one of the things that, you know, gated communities can do, especially if you happen to be in a very high crime area, the gated community is the distinction between getting mugged and not getting mugged, getting robbed and not getting robbed. So, yeah, mine and yours and uh, sadly, some people need to be reminded very forcefully or visually that there is a distinction between mine and yours. And incidentally, that's one of the, you could say, one of the great innovations that does come through the uh, culture of the Bible is the distinction between mine and yours. And we get it into the rest of the Torah about the, the what's the big deal about moving someone's boundary stones? You know, I need room to expand. I'll just move them over a little bit. He, he wasn't using it. I'll just go over there and shift him over a little bit. Give me, give me some breathing room. No, it's that when somebody is distincted, dis, um, made a distinction between yours and not yours, you need to respect that. You need to trust that. That's okay. That is not mine. So I don't go there. We talk about even we've taken this language over into interpersonal relationships about having quote boundaries unquote between people that if someone is aggressively trying to push into your boundary or push back your boundaries push their boundaries into yours that you need to just say no sorry um it needs to be respected that hey you are just moving in a little bit too far in this direction so some of the, the key things that we've learned already so far with this is that the importance of you know, waiting, 
not just charging in with whatever you want to do. That's one, I guess, one of the key good lessons that you just have from the architecture that you see at the basics at the mountain with the with the the boundaries, the barrier put around the mountain, and then with the tabernacle itself made even more specific with the curtains and the door that there is a distinction that you need to make between the things that you just want to do. I want to go, hey, I want to go see that the shiny thing with the with the angels on it. No. <laughs> you just don't go wandering in to go take a look at it. You have to see that there is a distinction between the outside and the inside. Yes, Pamela, you have your hand up. Go ahead. You've heard of the concept of the pearly gates. There's no pearly gates, is there? <laughs> the pearly gates. Well, you know, it, it, is, it is very interesting you mentioned that because um, one of the, the great pictures that you get in the book of Revelation is about the pearly gates. But what are those pearls? The apostles. It's a very interesting picture that you have. You have the, the 12 foundations, which are what? The 12 tribes. And then the gates. Each one of them a giant pearl. Very interesting. Ed. Yeah, you, have to, you have to look at the, the gates as, well, does that go back to the um, interesting parable of the pearl of great price that was found? And very interesting picture that the apostles being, yes, went out and looked for it. So the master went out looking for those great pearls and uh, collected, um, ended up, I guess, being, you know, initially uh, <laughs> uh, 12, and then they had to replace it. So it ended up being, I guess, 13 to uh, start out with because one killed himself, and then they had to replace him. So it ended up being... Uh, 13 to kind of kick things going. So, very interesting picture of the gate. So, with the gate, we see some interesting pictures here of what Yeshua said about that. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, it said, When Yeshua said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who come after me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So there you have a, a number of different allusions to um, particularly talking about to the prophet Yemeriah uh, or Jeremiah or the, the whole issue of the bad shepherds, the good shepherd, and then the bad shepherds. And the bad shepherds being... Those uh, kings, the leaders, the priests that were corrupt within Israel and its uh, death rattles before the exiles were leading the people down the bad road, even to the point of, of uh, you know, the, the whole issue that we've talked about with the issue of slavery and what the Shemitah or the sabbatical year and the Yobel or the Jubilee, the proclamation of freedom but they're not wanting to let the servants go to just discharge their service on the Shemitah. No, they, they went, they let them go, then they go, nope, we're going to get them all back. So they took them all back, and that was okay. Well, you like your slaves so much? Well, you're going to enjoy your own slavery even more. 
So that's where you all are going off into is bondage. So another interesting passage as we move this forward is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses, um, I'm going to start in, in, in uh, verse 11 and uh, read this section here. But this is in the picture of this maintaining the boundary between the Tahor and the Talmud within ourselves because maintain it within ourselves so that we can be what for Messiah? Ambassadors. So that we can be faithful, shaliach, faithful apostles, faithful sent ones to represent who the Messiah is. So starting here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 from verse 11. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Mashiach or Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, it's very interesting when you see the particular quotations, if you just go, go back to uh, what we started out with this, you know, you would say, okay, well, what is this? We just go off into a commune and uh, never, never mingle with anybody else in the world? But sounds, it sounds good. But one of, one of the things, what was one of uh, Messiah's last messages there in, in, in the book of John? His last address, starting in chapter 13, moving on. It's like, I pray that they don't be taken out of the world, but what? Yes, but kept safe from the evil one. Because they are going to be in the world, but not what? Not of the world. Because how can you be an ambassador if you're not around the people you were sent to? <laughs> yes, it's kind of, you know, the, the whole um, ambassador over Zoom thing it will kind of lose something. Yeah. <laughs> lost, lost in translation. Yes, you can just kind of, kind of uh, phone it in from afar, your ambassadorship. Yes. So it is interesting that when you, when you take a look at this particular um, passage and the quotation that the Apostle Paul has in here, uh, first, when he says, you know, I, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So you have a combination there, mostly of Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12 in there. So again, reiterating at the end of Leviticus as to what the purpose of the tabernacle is. But also, you have there uh, from the section that we are looking at today, and Exodus uh, 20, 
29 verse 45 and you know i will dwell in them and walk among them so one of the other things that you see is isaiah 52 verse 11 when it says come out of their midst and be separate and it also continues on and uh saying and do not touch what is unclean and if you go on into isaiah 52 through the end uh, or just a couple more verses in there this is talking about the priesthood and giving this this um connection to the exodus you were taken out and delivered to the land so very interesting when you have this this um prophecy of the servant of the Lord starts up right at the end of chapter 52. So this is saying to the priesthood, hey, come out and be separate, just like Israel came out from Mitzrayim or Egypt out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. So you're going to be coming out and then begins the great prophecy of the servant of the Lord in the end of 52 into 53. So the great prophecy there so to prep the priesthood for the servant of the lord because you will see that uh, there tended to be a big challenge of that preparation because what was the mashiach what was yeshua having a huge problem with there unbelief and chiefly among whom Yeah, the leaders of the temple, the ones at the head of the Sanhedrin, there were a lot of believers in the Sanhedrin, but the ones who were chiefly in charge, the, the high priest in that particular time period, and the key officials, the ones who should have been prepared for the coming of the servant of the Lord, were not. They had not come out of their Egypt. So they had not really come out of the midst and be separate. Because you saw the, the dealings that they were doing. It sounded a lot of like what Herod was doing. Now, granted, Herod was a, a lot worse. But the various uh, efforts of being you know, jealous of someone's popularity or being fearful of the political ramifications of decisions was a lot of what, like what Herod was doing and a lot of what you read about in Roman culture, what they were doing, and a lot of what you read about other nations and what they did, you know, the political intrigue. And if you, you know, uh, look at various accounts, uh, fictional or otherwise, related to the, the kings of England, the kings of France, they all do that. Everybody's trying to whack the other person to take over command and get more power. I mean, from the person at the checkout counter in your grocery store who has a little bit of power to the person who is a government official, to presidents, to kings, whatever. People who have power, you know, the, that old aphorism about absolute power. Well, it doesn't take absolute power to corrupt. Any little bit of power... You know, people, if you're on a homeowner's association board, you get a little bit of power and you have to really be careful because what will you do? If you don't watch yourself, what will you do? You'll try to use your power to do that. So the priesthood in the particular time of the, um, the temple there in the first century 
they were acting just like everybody else. No, they did not come out and be separate. So it's very interesting when you see that message come down again in the book of Revelation, come out of Babylon and be separate. There's a call again to come out and be separate. But what is the coming out and being separate? If you are a mobile tabernacle, mobile temple, your courtyard boundary has to be intact. Not like Swiss cheese, where the world is jumping through the holes, over the top, digging under the, the bottom, yeah, <laughs> sneaking stuff in. Because when you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll see what happens when you don't keep that boundary of the tabernacle, or in that case, the temple, intact. Outside it may look just fine, but when the prophet is given the vision, literally digging through the wall into the side to see what's going on inside, what was going on inside the temple? Yes, pagan idols, you know, the servants of God with their backs to God, worshiping another deity through the gates of the temple. So these are supposed to be the, the great entrance for the people coming to God. They had their backs to God, facing another deity and blending them all together. Ah, yes, Pamela, go ahead. You mentioned something about the duty of the prophet uh, earlier when we were talking about ambassadors. Can you tell me again what that um, role of that the prophets were compared to, contra- what do you call it, in contrast to the ambassadors? Oh, prophet. Well, prophet is uh, quite, quite different from uh, an ambassador. The ambassador is delivering a message, a very, tr- a very trusted message. But... You also have to see with the prophet is a, you could say is like probably, probably like a, probably like a viceroy in ancient uh, regal times and maybe even like a, a vice president, someone who can actually, you know, be speaking as the person. Now with an ambassador, it is said to be that you are hearing like the leader of the foreign nation is speaking. But can the ambassador actually make a treaty? No. Though they should be able to frame up the treaty, but who gets the final send-off for the thing? It is the one who sent them. And that is where the, the unique role for the prophet is, because you see that the, the prophets of old, like Eliyahu, is making you know you could say enacting a contract of a sort and then you see with the great prophets that are said to come there in revelation the the two witnesses calling down fire enacting the contracts with heaven and earth so yes the prophets and ambassadors similar in speaking one for the other but the actual speaking the words of that is one of the unique roles for a prophet, which, when we get into the book of Deuteronomy, is why those chapters in chapter 13 and chapter 18 are so important. Because 
they give you the tests for a prophet. Because that role of a prophet is so important, they are speaking the words of God. So thus, prophecy should not be something taken lightly or entered into. Uh, 13, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18, or give tests. Uh, the main test is not only if they, what they say is going to happen happens, but the key one is that they are leading you toward a different God. That is the key one. Because one of the things that you see the Apostle Paul warns about with the man of sin can fool people. Uh, Pamela, do you have a question or a comment? Okay. Fantastic. So, continuing on with this uh, passage that we have here in uh, Corinthians. It really ends here in, uh, in chapter 7, verse 1. If you kind of look at the theme of it, it really continues on from chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, into verse 1 of chapter 7. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So one of the key things that you see with this, you see with the, the tabernacle. Remember we went through in a few chapters ago in the, the Exodus 25 to 27, talking about the wash basin to cleanse yourselves or Doing what? That's for the priests going where? Going to the, you know, HaKodesh or the holy place to go in, you know, their hands, their feet, the things they do and where they go has to be cleansed because they are going in the direction further toward the direction of the presence of God. So on top of this, a very interesting passage uh, comes in from Galatians, further on toward this. Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 17 and 18. Here, starting out first. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For, those, uh, for these are in opposition one to another, uh, to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So you look at that and go, oh, wow, what? Well, I guess we just now stop, uh, stop with these Torah readings now because they all go out the window. So what is it that we are actually looking at? Now, before we go on in Galatians, let's just take a brief little you know, excursus, a little detour to what Paul's instructions, because remember, Galatians was one of the first letters that Paul wrote. It was written, you know, scholars would say, thematically and, and chronologically before Romans. So Romans is considered to be like the final draft of a lot of these letters, like Galatians, Colossians, Ephesians. And you get the final cohesive form of it in the book of, or his letter to the Romans in Rome. But let's take a look first at uh, his instructions for his student, uh, Timothy, and to 
being a leader, pastor of congregations. And uh, the first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than the further administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and good conscience and a sincere faith. For some people, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So, thus you can see, what should this passage here just start to tell you a little picture of where Paul is coming from. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they are making confident assertions. They are teaching the law. The problem is not that they are teaching the law. It's that they don't understand what it is that they're teaching. So, Thus, you can start to see, and the Apostle Peter brings this up in one of his letters, that the writings of Paul are difficult sometimes to understand. And lawless people, or reckless people is another way to put that, twist his words to their own destruction. So, you can see some of the other instructions here from Paul as he goes on. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, continuing on verse 8 through uh, verse 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, you know, there's this old saying in law enforcement that ignorance of the law is no excuse. So, what is this issue? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Meaning, you must apply it according to what its intent is about. You're not, you know, twisting it out of, as we were saying earlier about misunderstanding it. Yes, Alex has a comment or a question. Still, it's hard to take this stuff because it's, it's not made for righteous people, but it's made for those who are, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, but I, I don't murder uh i'm not necessarily immoral i'm not a homosexual i'm not a kidnapper oh i don't need the law it says it right there <laughs> that's ridiculous the, the interesting thing is is that uh we'll go on with this further but again back to that thing of ignorance of the law is no excuse thought experiment cop pulls you over and says okay i'm cuffing you why well, you should know. I'm just slapping the cuffs on, hauling you away. Why? You're in trouble. 
You're, you're going to jail. Why? Well, you should know. You're going to jail. This is what Paul's getting at here. And what the issue is, why the law is not made for the righteous person. And this is going to continue on with this conversation of where, where Paul is going with this. And what's the purpose? This is using the law lawfully. And we'll see here uh, some examples of using the law unlawfully. And actually, you just mentioned it earlier in what we had just seen in the previous uh, part of this, you know, with the myths and endless genealogies, basically taking stuff, bolting it onto what the word of God is, saying this is the word of God, and then making it say something else to get bogged down into. Yes. I don't know if I'm remembering the the scripture probably, but doesn't it say, who is righteous? No, not one. Yes. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. Yeah. Yes. If nobody's righteous. It's like the master said, the, the sick person doesn't need a physician. Are you going to claim that you're, you don't need me because right. you're, you think you're not sick? Right. Who's sick? Everybody's sick. Right. Which goes so back to there too. the tabernacle. What is the purpose of the tabernacle again? To get us from outside the tabernacle to the presence of God. In the process, we need to change. It's a big part of what the lesson of Vayikra or uh, Leviticus is, is we need to change in the process of going from uh, tame or unfit to approach, I can't just waltz right in, to tahor, fit to approach. Yes, Alex. So with Paul's letter, he, he just indicates those things I know Larry's not a murderer. You know, those three or four things, so he doesn't need the law either. Well, how about all the other stuff? He could have gone on listing. Well, I know, but this says that you don't need the law because you're not those four or five things. Well, he could have gone on forever, and it would have hit something that I am very quickly because I'm a lot of stuff. Why didn't he put that in? And why, why does a guy sitting in a... A cheesy church down the street said, well, doggone, I don't need any yes. of it then. Well, let's, I got faith. All right. Well, let's, let's go on. Let's hear more of what he has to say. Going back over into Paul's final draft of where he was going with this, and Romans chapter 7. Now, if you kind of remember where the Romans chapter 7, this is the woeful man I am, how that, how who can save me from this body of death is how chapter 7 ends. Well, this is kind of working up to that. <laughs> That great crescendo there in uh, Romans chapter 7. Therefore, my brethren, you are also made to die to the law through the body of Messiah, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So, how then do you go from Tame, unfit to approach, to Tahor, fit to approach? There's the gates. You only get into the, t- to the tabernacle one way. What's right through the gate? You know the thing with the smoke? Yes. Right. Right. There's the stuff in between. All that's uh, the copper stuff. That's the, the copper, the brass, whatever, uh, bronze, that does what? 
burn up, wash, cleaning, purifying, cleansing. So you got to get through that before you go into the presence of God. So here we have in Romans chapter 7, where it's like that body of Messiah is part of what the whole thing at the entrance is. You got to go through the door, one door, and then you got to hit the altar. And then from there, you know, you don't just waltz on yourself. What goes on ahead of you? The korban. And when we get into Leviticus, it's korban is the thing that approaches. That's what it means in Hebrew. So, you go from being unfit to approach then to being fit to approach to the altar. Then uh, going on ahead of you is your offering in ahead of you toward into the presence of God. That is all a part of what the process is. So again, call of a Homer. So the pattern that was shown to Moshe on the mountain of the various articles and the instruments and the furniture. That being the process, you go in through the door, you go through this and toward the presence of God. Then how much more then is the Mashiach going to then change you into somebody else? Like what Israel became with, as we get through into it and go through the, the account again of going into the land, that first generation of Israel had to die. They did not trust to go in. They didn't trust that they were being given the land to trust the one who took them out. So second generation would be going in. So continuing on with uh, what Yeshua has said here as being another framing comment because the Apostle Paul said, you know, what did he chastise people in saying? Are you of Paul? Are you of Apollos? Were you baptized into Paul? Were you baptized into Apollos? No. Who were you baptized into? Or who were you immersed, cleansed, washed away? Via the Mashiach. That's who was the one who cleansed you. So thus, Paul is saying, I am a sent one. I am a Shaliach of whom? The Mashiach of Messiah. So when Yeshua is talking here, Yeshua being the one who sent Paul. We read about that in Acts called him, did him, flipped him around, gave him a 180 from where he was headed before, from a persecutor of the, of the believers to a believer and an advocate and a sent one, a special shaliach, a special servant sent one. So Yeshua here and the, you could say, preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, just after the Beatitudes, you have now this setting and the framing of what is going to follow because right after this launches right into the Sermon on the Mount 
with all the, you have heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, but I tell you, um, what theologians call the, the uh, six antitheses or points that are in contention, not being a contention between the um, grace and truth, but what you see is the Mashiach is setting the stage saying, no, I am not in tension. And he says here in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, uh, yes. Uh, Rose. That last word in verse 17 where it says fulfill, what is that in the Greek? It says right there, pleru. I know, but what, what is it? Uh, pleru means to fill up, to make complete. Because here is another passage uh, that uses the same exact word. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Then Yeshua arrived from Galilee at the at the Jordan, coming to John baptized to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, to pleru all righteousness. So um, if you take that to mean to complete, to bring to an end, how do you then explain this? It's the same word. So if you take um, it in the previous verse to mean that uh, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, to bring to an end, um, then what do you say about this one? Where uh, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Is it saying that we come to complete or bring to an end all righteousness? Or is it that you are bringing it to its fullness to make it full? which is one of the, the concepts, like we were, we were talking earlier about the calendar of the Lord's appointments, and you have the concept of seven and eight. Eight, uh, seven is completeness. Seven comes related to Shavah, which means to oath, to make certain. And eight is Shemin, which is fatness, also mean to overflow. So, Seven, bring it to completeness. Eight, to overflow it. And you have this picture both with the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. One plus seven, eight. Days of Sukkot, Tabernacles, seven. One on the end, eight. Something coming to its fullness and then flowing over the other side to abound in it. And that is what you have with, with the pleru, is to bring it to its fullness. I feel we've done this again uh, before, but I want to do it again in times past. I want to read I, I, Isaiah uh, 42, 21. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable 
So he, uh, when people say, oh, he fulfilled it, so we don't have to keep it. Oh, uh, right here, he's saying he's going to magnify the law. And if, you, if you're reading in, in the words that he did speak in Matthew, he said, if a man looks upon a woman with lust in his eyes, he has committed adultery already. That's magnifying the law. You know, if, uh, you know, thou shalt not uh, bear false witness, uh, you know, I mean, he came and he magnified the law. He, right. he extended it out from a physical point of view to a spiritual point of view. I mean, oh. He magnified it. Basically, rather than expanding it, he just emphasized that that's what it's always been. Because one of the, the key lessons that you get both in the letter to Hebrews and in the prophets is that the offerings and the temple were a type of something. They were not the things themselves. As a key thing that keeps getting hammered again and again from chapter 4 of Hebrews all the way through chapter 10 of Hebrews, that the tabernacle, the priesthood, is something that is pointing to something else. So when the Aaronic priesthood goes out of commission, when the tabernacle goes out of commission, when the temple is destroyed, does that mean that what they were pointing to stops, that there is no atonement anymore if you can't do the day of atonement? No. They are expressions of what is happening in heaven, what heaven is actually doing. They are explaining, bringing us closer into the things of God. So thus, they are not a, as some translations put it, a mere shadow, but they are a shadow, which brings up a very interesting point because two of the guys that we met here in our Torah reading today, one is Batsal El, which means what? Shadow of God. So what was it that was creating a shadow it was from God that Batsalel was working on. Cloud settled in over the tabernacle, creating what by day and what by night. You know, you got your nice sun canopy during the day and your nice heat lamp at night. So that is the shadow of God. And who's the other guy? Aholiab comes from two words again. Av, father. Aholi, ohel, tent. Basically, father's tent or tent of, tent of father. Very interesting group there. We got tent of father and shadow or shade of God working together. So what we see here in the example of both of these men is that even the names of the people, we always know that names of people are quite significant in talking about what is going on here. So who is providing the shade? Who is providing the shelter for the whole people? God, the one who's dwelling in their midst. and. Where is the, the great father of the people who's dwelling in their midst? There in the tent. 
So a very interesting reminder, even for the people who are involved with that, is that these things, these lessons to be taken in their entirety versus being lost in the weeds of one particular piece of furniture or this piece of furniture or this ritual or that rite, what is the whole picture of it actually saying together? None of them are mere shadows of something. They are a shadow, a very important one, because why? Are we here in the direct presence of God yet? No. So in the meantime, what do we have? We have the shadows that are given to us, which is why the, the first thing of Hebrews or the first chapter of Hebrews starts out as it does about prophets, angels being sent to the people. And then finally, in the great representation of the Son of God. Because all of these things are building toward one thing, this one thing of the dwelling place of God being with mankind, as it was in Genesis, as it will be in Revelation. Yes? I was going to say, when you, one thing I heard that was really good about that shadow is when you're walking along and you see a shadow over your shoulder, what do you do? You look around, you look around to see who's yes. there. Yes. It's not, in, it's not because it's a, showing you that there's something happening, not that you could ignore it or you can ignore it to your own peril. Yes. And you bring up a very interesting point because with, with uh, shadows, if you even take that um, metaphor, the picture even further, is that you can, if it's something significant that is indicated by the shadow, what do you do? You look for what is casting the shadow. Right, right. So, you know, if, if the shadow you see kind of looks like your father, and you turn around, oh, there he is. Okay, you see something that you may want to say, hello, hi, I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. Versus if you see the shadow of somebody with a knife poised right over your head, that brings a different reaction to <laughs> reacting to what is casting that shadow. So that is the, the picture that we get of <laughs> shadows can be of something good or of something bad, but what is actually casting the shadow is, is important. So continuing on with this further, so we have here the, you could say the resetting of uh, our or I could say re retuning of what it is that we're hearing from Paul and what people say about Paul. Because Messiah's words here are controlling. You know, like when you have in contracts, you have certain, certain clauses that are controlling con uh, clauses. This is the controlling clause of everything that you hear from Paul. Because if Paul isn't on this page, he is a false prophet. He is a false apostle. Yes. It becomes a lawyer interpreting a law, <laughs> yes. essentially. Before a court, they interpret and argue laws. And it would, it would almost be as he's the using the law unlawfully, almost. And when you read all of Romans, the first half initially sounds completely contrary to the second half, right? So it, it, you have this, this it makes no sense. Right? Be, you're in a 
a, a funky loop of, 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 of circular reasoning when you go, it's good and bad, bad and good, and follow it, don't follow it, all kind of garbage. So when you go through this cycle, it's, it's funny, very comical. I had a, not this discussion, but this, this topic has popped up occasionally with my employer, because he's Joe's witness. And uh, with Joe's witness, to be fair, they follow, for the most part, uh, the, a, a general core of what Moses' instructions are, as far as you know, conduct, all the, they, don't, they don't deviate too far from that, but they don't obviously keep holidays and such, but, or, or other, other details. Um, but it's interesting to, to, to note that in, 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 in discussions with him off and on over the last few years, um, we agree on a lot of different topics, so the things we agree with. But when it comes to, to this topic regarding you know, instructions on how to follow God's instructions, follow God's law, uh, uh, we obviously di- differ on this. When it comes to this topic that happens to all of us occasionally, something we, we know, so well, the law is gone, we don't follow it and stuff anymore. And, and it's, which I've always brought up, using the term law, which is, I, I get it, why they use the word law in English, but it's an unfair description. Because in, in t- instruction is a better description of it. Instructions have laws in them, as far as things that work, things that don't work. You do this, you'll break the tool. Look at it, things you just don't do. So it has instructions, but it has rules. You can't break the, the instructional rules because you'll break your tool, you'll break your toy, you'll break whatever you're doing. So instructions have laws in them. We don't call them that. But that's the hard, it's one of the hard things because we don't like the idea of being a law, some, somehow some restriction upon us. And, and it's, a, it, it's, it's the nature of how, how our flesh doesn't like laws. We want to go against them. It's what we do. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a rebellious nature in us. But. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to um, point you back to and when we were looking at our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1, um, verses 3 through 7, mentions in there that um, about the false, uh, strange doctrines, don't pay attention to myths or endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, that word administration comes from the compound Greek word of okonomos. No, nomos, you know, is like law instruction. Oko is or oiko, actually. Oiko is house. So you could also say house rules is what this is. What are the house rules of God? We read them earlier today. Those are part of the house rules of God. There happen to be furniture and uh, instructions related to the tabernacle, but those are a part of the house rules to understand. Those are the basic instructions of the relationship with God. So what, what happens when you, you, know, you go into an establishment and they have the house rules up on the wall and you read them, they're too bad. <laughs> you, you, you read them, okay, you go through them, it's like, okay, now I understand this is how the place works. So, um, yeah, yeah they, they have various uh, standards, like no shirt, no service, whatever. So you get that, it's like, okay, I got that, you know. So, do you now disregard that? You're like, okay, no shirt, no service, then you turn around and rip your shirt off. No, that's not how we operate. You realize, okay, that's how this place operates. So, the oikonomos of God is the Torah. 
That is what that is. That's the basic instructions of it. But just like what we saw Yeshua say back in Matthew chapter 5, in prelude to, in preamble to the Sermon on the Mount, that is the basis point. Your righteousness has to exceed that. And then he goes on to explain how. And just like Rose pointed out, you know, these are the, you know, getting to the heart of where God is, to where murder, do you understand the full ramifications? We saw Paul talk about murdering your, your parents. Well, we find out as we read through the, through the Torah that murdering your parents takes on a whole lot more than just actually killing them. There is a lot more that goes into that. And where does it all start? It starts in the basis of you. We call it the heart, the mind, wherever, where you start out with, where this evil crouches, as it's talking about in Genesis. It's crouching at your door. That's where it begins. Where is it crouching at your door? Do you let it in? Is the boundary around you intact? Or do you just have an open door policy where you're just like, oh, evil, okay, you come in, good, oh, you come in, anything, everything, just all the all, all come free. Just come on in. Or do you distinguish between what is fit to come into your life or unfit to come into your life? And that is what the whole point of the house rules of God is. So as we continue on here, um, Let's see, passage here that I'm going to go back into Galatians because we get now back to, now we've taken a look at this whole thing of um, do we need to forget about the law? No. It's the house rules. But that isn't where your life stops, just the house rules. You know, do you go into an establishment? And it's like, okay, as long as I'm wearing my shirt, then I can just treat everybody like garbage. No. That's the starting point is to keep your shirt on. Then when you're in there, there are the things like courtesy, you know, pay for your food. Yeah, pay for your food when you get it. Maybe not leave a mess, not harm other people when you're in there. So go beyond the house rules that are up there on the wall. Because why? Because you respect other people. And that whole thing of the golden rule you know, if you want to be respected, what do you do? You respect other people. You treat them with respect. So that's when you get back to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, they which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, thus you get the actions of the flesh. So, the opposite side of that is in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is what? No law, meaning what? Yes, exactly. You're not under the law because what? This is what the kingdom of God is all about. And Paul just got done saying that 
the law is for what? To point out tahor, tameh, what is fit, which is the list we just looked at, and what is unfit, which is the previous list we just looked at. So if you're behaving like the list we just saw, that's not what is fit to approach the kingdom. There is something wrong inside of you that needs to get, get cleaned up and figured out. But the other list is closer to where you are, you know, that's the fit to approach side. Now you're like, okay, well, I can fall into the other, the other, the bad list, the unfit to approach. Well, that's a part of what the whole cleanup process is in the process of it. But it is a transformation of it. Are we like David, as he says, you know, I long to dwell in the temple of the Lord. Be there day and night. Just love to be there. Or are we like, you know, you go, you do your tabernacle thing, and then you go out and get on with life. Then you come back and do the tabernacle thing, and then go get on with life, so to speak. So you're in the, you're in the fit to approach, and you're like, oh, wow. Glad that's over. I'll get back out and you know, go do your stuff. Yes. Who who are you going to serve? You're going to go for the good, the evil, or are you going to go for the good, or are you going to go for the evil, or life or death? So, choose the road that leads to life. So, when we get on with this, you can see that. This instruction of what goes in and fit to approach. And it's a passage here from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 13. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because these things, of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers of them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Well, how do we learn that? House rules? How how do we possibly learn anything like that? Maybe we need a guru. You think we need to do a seance to try to figure out that? Maybe dig someone up? Maybe they, they can tell us something about that? No. If you want... To know how to get to know somebody, what do you do? Find out who they are. Find out what they like. You know, the Yeshua told this this uh, parables about you know the good father. You know, it's the the one who loves his child. Going to what? Give him a scorpion? No. Because why? There is a relationship of love between parent and child. So if you want to get to know who God is, just like we were seeing going through Exodus, they went to the mountain, they get to have the experience with God. Like, great, now how do we continue on with this relationship? Well, let's just try doing it like all the other people do. Uh, No, because the creator of heaven and earth, the one who truly can deliver 
tromping over all of the so-called gods of Egypt, and then the so-called gods of Canaan through the Red Sea, and now at the mountain, you meet that one, the true creator of heaven and earth, the true Lord of all. That one is, has a different relationship between uh, the deity and human, humankind. Yes. Uh, so to kind of sum it up for me, anything you learn, my trade is a four or five year apprenticeship as is engineering, at least that. Uh, so the cherry picking that a lot of new Christians are accused of, rightfully so, <laughs> You know, you could take this and I could say, you know, I feel good, I'm of the Spirit, I'm with God. That's it. I'm done, right? We're all good to go. Common sense tells you. You can't cherry pick a couple lines or a couple chapters out of Paul. You've got years, you've got study, but they're preaching it out here. Hey, you got love? You got forgiveness? You're good to go, bro. That's your... How can it be? How is anything in this life of value that you can learn sitting here and reading three lines of? Impossible. Never been done. Well, it's, it's one of those things where if you were to just take a one-liner, um, the best one-liner, I guess you might say, uh, along those lines, is one of the one-liners that the Messiah retorted to the adversary, to Satan. And he said, when he was tempted about, hey, make, turn these stones into bread. And he quotes from Deuteronomy and says, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. No cherry picking in there. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So take that. So when Paul is saying the law is good if you use it lawfully, means what? You're not turning one part of the words of God against some other part of the words of God and saying that these supposed words of God are now contrary and canceling and destroying these other words of God. How are you supposed to live like that? That's like, you know, you by saying that, you know, you don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, is like saying, oh, well, I know you're hungry. Why don't you just go over the fridge and eat whatever you want in there? Don't mind me to tell you that there's, there's some strychnine in there and some, uh, some rat poison and, you know, just go eat whatever you want that's in there. Is that what you're saying? Is that there's some of the words of God are dangerous to you? Deadly? That if you partake of some words of God, that they will destroy your connection with heaven? That they will take you away from the Messiah? I think Paul had some words on that very topic in Romans. Is the law sin? May it never be. Because how would I have known? Unless I read unless I knew what every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God was. And then if I wonder about what these words of God say, you know, are there lots of loopholes in it? You go to what the Messiah said there in the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes, yeah, if you're looking for loopholes, 
Um, go back to that list of the deeds of the flesh, because there might be some problems in there if you're looking for loopholes. So, uh, I hope that in this picture we can see that in a passage that looks like it's just a something ripped from architectural digest that truly what you're seeing here is a picture of what heaven is doing with earth and trying to build and rebuild this connection that's the dwelling place of god can truly be with mankind and in the process i hope we've also seen that some of what Paul is saying here that some people have taken to be um, tearing down the Torah, the words of God, are actually building them up and making them stand up so that truly when Paul warns Timothy that the law is good if you use it lawfully, that it is important then to learn what is lawful and how to properly use the words of God to do what? Not bash people over the head, but to do what? To build each other up and to build the body of Messiah. To do what? To be proper ambassadors for the Messiah to draw the people toward God, which is what the mission of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is. Yes, Deborah. So before coming in tonight, I have several passages. I wanted to read you. This was in Romans this is one of the presented things that was my little list of scriptures. Is It says, Romans 10, 1, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayers to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is mis- misdirected zeal, for they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself, refusing to accept God's way, They cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And as a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commandments. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven for us. The other one's in parentheses, so. And it, okay, so I'll just stop right there. So that is one of my uh, scriptures I'm given to, because um, I said happy Sabbath, and I told her, oh, you know, Psalms 119's great and beautiful. And so, I mean, I know this, that sh- this person has been itching to, to, to say this to me because I, I make reference to Sabbath and coming, and, you know, you can't help it when it's in your mind and heart. But that's just one of the scriptures. So, you know, when you read that, you, you begin to um, wrestle with yourself like, well, yeah, gee, what does that mean? How do you respond to somebody? And that's what we're learning to be ambassadors is I'm learning to be an ambassador for the commandments. How do you wrestle against this particular scripture here with that? That Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Say that. That's what I refute. That's what I go come back to say is. I mean, bas- basically, you you go with that, and uh, you ask the person. Oh, okay, this is what this is what Christ said. Oh, I did Christ say said, that. I sent her that. <laughs> Christ said, you know, I did yeah, not come to abolish it. The correct, law, I believe. So, um, yeah. is Paul a false prophet? I mean, that's a simple question. I know. I've wrestled with Paul. No, I mean, and I think- uh, truly, that that is that is the question because otherwise. Yeah. 
you are uh, cherry picking and proof texting because then the same person would have to explain why Paul a this few chapters the, earlier said the law is holy and good. Right, that's what so, I'm saying. Galatians um, is, five is Paul a schizophrenic or is yeah. he um, speaking in very difficult things for people to understand? Like the apostle Peter said, yes. and he said that unstable, lawless people will twist his words to right. their own destruction. So twist, yeah. That's that's what I'm saying because. Messiah gave his marching orders for what his mission was, and it was not to abolish the law and the right. prophets. So, so I would if, take him above If all. a supposed apostle is saying something that you're saying is different, yes. either you're not understanding Paul or Paul is a false right, prophet. Right, that's right. You know, not a false dilemma. I mean, if... Right, it was a misunderstanding yes. because you have to read the entire text and... You have to remember that who he was and, talking to, like the Galatians, and, the Colossians. I mean, one of the one of the things you might just say is that um, Paul is the fi- uh, Romans is the final draft of what Paul's letters are. Romans ten. They bring them all together, and you cannot parachute into the Book of Romans. If anyone grabs into Romans for a proof text, say that's what I got. Say here. explain it in the whole context of Romans, because Romans is one running argument from beginning. To end. All of Romans. All of it. The whole book. So if you're dropping into chapter 10, you've got to explain chapter 7. Because chapter 7 is a part of the same argument as chapter 10. Right. And if you can't explain it, that means there is a problem right. with your argument. Yeah, it means you having some kind of a misunderstanding of... Right. And especially if you're talking to the Romans. These are all pagan... Na- pagan the seven churches, which yeah. has to do with the book of Revelation. Well, but, the, but the problem, though, is, is that he was also writing to people who know the law, as right. he mentions yeah. that at the beginning. And he's Some writing to also to the Jewish a group right, of, you know, a group of Jews he, that were okay, in the see, same place, yeah. too. That's so, what I'm saying. There's yeah. a, there is a major discord. And so these scriptures are picked out. And I mean... Yeah. Even when, you know, somebody who's not as whippersnapper smart, like, you, you know where to go right to to say that. But somebody like these new folks, Well, I would, I would say there, there's probably two passages that if you want to memorize them, this one. This one here. Yes, I knew Matthew, that one. Matthew chapter we 5, verses 17 one. through 20. And uh, the Messiah's retort to Satan. Right, I did think that. Every that word that proceeds out. out of the mouth of God. Right, yeah. So if you're arguing against these two Two witnesses from the Messiah on this. Right. There is something wrong with your reading of the yeah, word. I told myself that. And it could be run into what Paul's warning is to Timothy. Right. That you could be using the law unlawfully. Right, right. Because one of the interesting things is that um, you would have an internally, an internally inconsistent argument also in arguing from chapter 10. Because what is chapter 10 full of? Quotations from where? The, the, the Torah. Old Testament, right. And the prophets. See, oh, I wish they would have came yes. today. Oh, Ave. Well, I mean, that's, that's the thing. No, I know. Is I that, went through an old, I have a, all the New Testament. If, are you, um, is the person claiming that Paul is using the law to abolish the law? That's a very that's interesting a question. question. Okay. Yes, uh, Larry, you have a, a comment or a question? You know, one of the things that I found is that there's two scriptures that I managed to look up here, uh, Numbers twenty three nineteen and Malachi three six, where and people will agree when you say when you when you quote it they'll say oh yeah that's right he says I do not change, and then you say well then how how are you going to say if you say he doesn't change you're telling me that he changed between the Old Testament and New Testament 
He doesn't change. There? Yes, Pamela, go ahead. Okay, I was going to say, um, yes, um, when I was studying the workbook by First Fruits of Zion called Hagia Sov, right. they said that Marcion used to be a Catholic, and he was finally uh, deposed by them as a heretic, but they said that he changed scriptures, that he actually cut them out, burned them up, and therefore they were changed. Yep. So, if, like you were saying, you have to read the whole book of Romans in order to get the gist of it, and then um, some things do not jive. They do not go together because it was changed by the scribes. Right, but uh, one of the one of the things that we do have um, is we have a tremendous number of manuscripts of the uh, apostolic writings. So we have generations of uh, the manuscripts that so we can see what things have changed between one to the other. So, um, like if you one of the 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 things that's really helpful to use in that is called the comfort uh a comfort textual commentary i'm trying to remember what the what the title is it's a comfort text commentary and basically what it does is it for every verse in the apostolic writings it goes through and it shows which manuscripts actually have that in there and um for ones where there is a variant between them you will see uh, which of those manuscripts have it, and they have them ordered by the chronology of the generations of the manuscripts. So that is a way that when you have uh, faithful translations, have peeled back away some of those things that have came in with uh, some adventurous uh, translations from uh, later centuries. So that that can be helpful to peel back some of that. So yeah, that's why uh, things that have come into being uh, later than uh, the King James Version have peeled back away some of the things that were um, used some later generations of manuscripts in there. So that, that can be helpful. Yes, Deborah? Mine is, did God, you know, it just goes back when Eve, did God say... This is what we're all back to. Is ah, the garden, we're at the beginning yes. right now saying, well, did God say? Right. This is the, the, the basis of the argument that we're in today is we're saying, did God say? I mean, why would, Yeshua, why would God and Yeshua contradict each other? They wouldn't. If we're going to live in a government that's going to rule and reign over us, we have to live by a law. If we, I don't know how some people think we're just going to go flying off to heaven, but I don't know where we're just going to flutter around. You're, if we're going to be... In a, we have to live for a thousand years in the kingdom. What are we going up there to learn? Man's way again? Because that didn't work, <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it doesn't make sense that if God has taken us back to the people, back to the land, back to the, the religion and the, the, um, the financial, the, his financial way of doing things and measures, we must know, who, you know, those are our laws that we have to be lived by, right? Our Torah. Yeah, it's a it's a continuum from uh, the beginning parts of it through the apostolic writings. Yeah, some they're just, they're all on the same page. Yeah, because it, you know if you're not having um, with your particular view of the scriptures, if Messiah is not on the same page right. as Paul, there is a serious problem yeah. with the yeah. uh, view that a person may have of the scriptures. Yes, uh, okay. Piran. I think we have to remember that we're not always getting a translation. We're also 
receiving interpretation. And so if you're a, you know, if you speak two languages, you can read Bible in two languages. It's not possible to always make a translation for word for word. So we're getting a lot of interpretation. Yep. That's, that's correct. Yep. So that's, that's, that's why it's uh, hugely important if you have um, something where you have a... Um, interlinears can be helpful in that regard if you're not totally fluent in there because then you can sort of start picking up uh, the differences between uh, where the things are actually translated from and what words they actually come from. And oftentimes uh, the... the um, Interlinears will have a a more literal. A lot of them tend to, or some of them that use the uh, the Green's literal translation, which has its own challenges. But it tends to be pretty um, just straight down the middle. But at least then you can sort of peel back some of the layers into it to to see where things actually come from. But yeah, yeah, you're right. It. Um, some things get lost in translation. Yes, some things get definitely lost in translation. So any last thoughts as we uh, close out things here today? We've got to get going. <laughs> All right, we'll close things out with prayer. Father God, we thank you for giving us the testimony of your servants, and we thank you for showing us this great picture that, of what you're doing to bring heaven back to earth and bring us back into your presence. Father, we thank you for all of these blessings you've given us and covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities through the blood of your Son, Yeshua. We thank you in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, halal dot info.